0: So, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah 13. As we finish up our series in Nehemiah, I have enjoyed the Dickens out of this series. I don't know about anybody else, but I have loved it. Okay, Dickens. You know, like Charles Dickens or, I don't know. I actually want to start in the end of chapter 12. I'm going to start at the end of chapter 12 because I think that last few verses of chapter 12 and the first few verses of chapter 13 actually go together in a time frame, a specific time frame I'll talk about, and then I'll summarize throughout. We'll actually read all the way through 13:7. I'll summarize the things and then read the last few verses in Nehemiah 13. So out of reverence for God's word as it is read, please join me in standing. So, chapter twelve, beginning of verse forty-four. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns for Judah. Uh, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and of thanksgiving to God, and all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, so that's a hundred years span from Zerubbabel to Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and then it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam. Hmm. We've heard about Balaam today already. They hired Balaam against them to curse them, yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all, of the, all those of foreign descent, Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain and wine and oil, which were given by the commandments to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem and then discovered the evil that Eliashem had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back their vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense offering. He also found that they had quit collecting for the ministry for the Levites. That's verses 10 through 14. He also found that they had begun to violate the Sabbath day and allow the marketplace to take over the Sabbath day. That's verses 15 through 17 uh, through uh, 22. And then verses 23 through 28, he found that they were also intermarrying with non believers, that they had slidden back into that marrying with unbelievers. Even the high priest's son had married into the family of Tobiah. And you remember, Tobiah was not God's friend or the friend of God's people. Then, verse 30. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. What I have summarized for you and read for you is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We confess to you, O Lord, that resilient fidelity, resilient fidelity is a struggle for us. Give us your undying aid to remain loyal and retain our commitment to the end of our days. Amen. You may be seated. Well, my friends, the end has come, and oh, what an end. I mean, everything up to this point, chapter one through chapter 12, everything up this point leads you to think, to expect that the conclusion of Nehemiah will be, and they lived happily ever after. But then you get to chapter 13, and when you read it, it feels almost like the wicked witch actually captured, cooked, and ate Hansel and Gretel. Sorry, that works for me. I don't know if it works for you. Right? It's like this big, huge, disappointing downer at the end. And that's how Nehemiah ends. And so, well, oddly enough, in all of chapter 13, God's goodness is really all over that chapter. We have to be on the lookout for it. And so we're going to have seven points. And I want you to notice on the back of the sermon notes the seven points. And each of the seven points starts with the letter C. And I want you to know that as soon as I said these seven points to Pastor Wes, he said with a twinkle in his eye and a dad joke on his tongue, hey, Mike, in this sermon, we're going to sell the seven C's. Sorry, dad jokes rule. All right, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to work through this fairly quickly uh, and slow down in certain places. But we're going to hit seven points, seven C points. So first off is a, clarify, or a classifying of the disparities. You notice at the end of chapter 12, it seems to go along with the start of chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. For a season after Nehemiah 1 through 12, at, for a season after Nehemiah 1 through 12, that ends with the dedication of the wall and all the celebration, for a season after that, for how long we don't know, but for a season, the people appear to have persisted in their covenant loyalties. But then came mission drift, so to speak, as people call it. There's a period when Nehemiah is not around. You'll see that down at verse 6. He's still the governor, but in verse 6, there's a period of time when he's not around, and then the rest of chapter 13 begins to happen, seems to begin to happen. There's this slow slide by God's people into complacency and compromise And it seems to have been developing in verses 4-7, through and it shows up clearly in the rest of this chapter. Now that's the first set of disparities. There's this covenant renewal, and there's this period of time where they seem to be on board, and then all of a sudden, the slide. So there's the first classifying of that disparity. That's the first set of disparities. But the other set of disparities is being displayed... Here, that seems to me are the ancestral sirings. Sorry, I had to say it that way. The ancestral uh, sirings of the Pharisees, verses 1 through 3, and the Sadducees, verses 4 through 7. If you take verses 1 through 3, and you take verses 4 through 7, and you follow both of those lines over the next few centuries of power struggles, especially with the priests. And war, especially the Maccabean revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes in the 167 BC, and through the hardening, the lines that began to harden more and more through all the privation, these two lines will begin to harden into camps that we will know later as Pharisees and Sadducees. On the one hand, in verses one through three. Some begin to establish a very severe line of demarcation of purity. And I'll explain it in a minute a little more fully. On the other hand, verses four through seven, some, Eliashib, the great the high priest and others, some are enjoying their power as high priest and will dabble with the devil, so to speak, even making a league with Tobiah, the enemy of God, to have a room. At the temple. That should tell you right there, that's a huge problem, right? So you've got the high priest doing that. You've got others doing these. So as you take those, you run with those through the centuries, you begin to see this two, two lines forming and hardening very clearly. Both end results are dangerous. So verses 1 through 3, one becomes sectarian and seclusive, even going beyond Scripture. Even though it starts with reading Scripture in verse 1 and 2, it goes beyond Scripture. Notice how it ends. Verse 3 ends. They separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. And that's where verse 3 ends. It doesn't say anything else. It just says they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Many years earlier, back in Ezra chapter 6, many years earlier... They did not see foreign descent as a problem. What they saw as the issue was faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or no faith. It didn't matter your descent. Does that make sense? So here's how it goes in uh, Ezra chapter 6, verses um, 20 and 21. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. Are you picking up what I'm putting down here? So there was no problem with those of foreign descent coming into the covenant community as long as it's faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob But by the time you get to 13, verse 3, you see them hardening along ethnic tribal lines. We would call it racism. You see them hardening along those lines. And that then, if you take that for the next few centuries, you can see where this ends up with the Pharisees who will have nothing to do with the Gentiles, not even go eat in their houses lest they become unclean, etc. Does that make sense? The other, verses 4-7, through turns out to be... Dangerous also because remaining in power, Eliashib is all about power. That's why he is in cahoots with Tobiah. Tobiah is the head mafia leader in the the vicinity. And so he is in cahoots with him because he wants to have power, keep power, maintain power. So in that direction, verses 4 through 7, remaining in power becomes everything, and being thought well of by outsiders becomes the reigning premise. And that's where the rest of the chapter begins to fall out, is from that side specifically. It leads to a messy, compromising set of situations. And so these messy, compromising situations become the focus of Nehemiah 13, which leads to the following contests and clashes, all the way from verse 4 to the end of the chapter. Now, before we go further, um, each of these circumstances that will be laid out from verse 4 to the end, each of these four circumstances that you hear me talk about were the very four areas... That God's people had promised they would never compromise on and remain firm on. You go back to chapter 10, verses 28 through 29, they specifically mention all four of those areas and say, We are committed. And here you are, sometime later, and the slide has happened. They even end chapter 10 with these words We will not neglect the house of our God. And by the time you come to chapter 13, God's house has been. Neglected. So they took, as I said the other day in adult class, they took the leap of faith and missed. (laughs) There you go. That's classifying the disparities. So then, verses eight through nine. Notice what Nehemiah does. The very first thing he does when he realizes what Tobit, what uh, Eliashib has done, verses eight and nine, he comes cleansing the temple. He comes cleansing the temple. Nehemiah sees the compromising business deal of Eliashib with Tobiah. Remember, Tobiah was displeased that Nehemiah had come to seek the welfare of God's people. That's what it says back in chapter 2, verse 10. He was displeased that Nehemiah had come to seek the welfare of God's people. Tobiah is not the friend of God or of God's people. And here's Eliashib, the leader of God's people, having a compromising uh, um, uh, business liaison with him—it's a bad situation. So Nehemiah sees it. It also is desecrating the temple. Okay, it's desecrating the temple. This pagan's stuff, which would not be clean, clean ceremonially clean, is being piled into the temple storeroom. It's it's desecrating the temple, and so Nehemiah takes action. Very much as when Scott was reading. Uh, about our Lord Jesus, our greater Nehemiah, when he came into the temple and he saw all the money-making going on, the business actions going on, and he came to the money changers and threw them out on their ear to cleanse the temple. In a very similar way, Nehemiah also felt compelled to throw out all of the floatsum and jetsum that was piled into the temple room. A room, by the way. A room that was supposed to actually be the storeroom to hold all of the foodstuffs for the priests and for the ministry to keep it funded. That's what that storeroom was for. And instead of Elijah keeping that up and thus keeping the ministry up, he compromises and brings all this in. So there's the problem there. Part of the problem. So Nehemiah cleanses the temple so he can begin collecting for the ministry. That's down in verses 10-14. through 14, So he can begin collecting for the ministry. Since the store the are the place where the material was supposed to be stockpiled to keep the priestly ministry funded and fed, had been co-opted, and likely also because of the people's slow drip. So the Elisha couldn't do this if the people didn't allow him to do it. So the people are slowly drifting as well. Okay. So with all that going on, then it says in verse uh, verse 10, the portions of the Levites had not been given, so that the Levites and singers who did the work had fled each to his field. It'd be almost as if, uh, as a congregation, I'm just thinking of an illustration, Is that, as a congregation, if we decided to take all of our money, or if you, you decided to take all of our money and resources to do something like, um, uh, let's just all invest in Amway, right? As a church, I mean, we wouldn't do that. But as a church, you did that. There would be nothing for us to buy the materials for Sunday school. There'd be nothing for us to take care of buying the wine for communion. There'd be nothing to take care of me. There'd be nothing, I mean, you just keep on going, right? And that's the kind of thing that's going on here. And so what happens then? Nehemiah remedies this by confronting the leaders. He's First off, he's cleansed the temple, and now he confronts the leaders. He confronts the very leaders who back in chapter 10, verse 39, had promised, we will not neglect the house of God. And notice his confrontation. It's in verse 11. It sounds almost, it's not verbatim, but it's a paraphrase of what they promised to do. He says, why is the house of God forsaken? They had said, we will not neglect the house of our God. And so he says, why is it forsaken? You have failed at this. Why? There's the point. So then, what does Nehemiah do? He restores the collection for the ministry, and he places, notice, he places reliable men over the collection and the distribution. It's down there in verse 13, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses. Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Madaniah, and they were considered reliable. He put people over it who others, the vast majority, felt were reliable, and their duty was to distribute it to their brothers. He, he restores the collection for the ministry. But further notice that he finds another problem. He finds he must confirm the Sabbath affirming the Sabbath, verses 15 through 22. Are you starting to feel the mess here? It's just an unfolding mess, and it's just getting thicker and thicker. And so the people of God, for for their welfare, the people of God were supposed to be enjoying the Sabbath, not letting the marketplace run their lives. God said to Israel, He brought them out of Egypt, who were used to working 24-7, who served the gods of Egypt, who were all about productivity. All the gods of Egypt were about producing, 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 producing. And God brings His people out of Egypt, liberating them, and He says, I don't need you to produce. Take one day off and rest, for crying out loud. Right? That's what He does for their welfare. And so, uh, the people of God for their welfare were supposed to be enjoying the Sabbath, but something happened slowly. Some of the people of God, it appears to me, began to think that their welfare really lay in the marketplace. Therefore, they began to allow commerce on the Sabbath. I find it interesting that only the Tyrians are mentioned, and so I assume, I'm assuming, this is just an assumption, that possibly it was a slowly encroaching thought that went something like this. Well, those Tyrians, they're pagans through and through, and they're going to be working on the Sabbath anyways, so let them bring in goods and set up a marketplace. Which then begins to gradually cheapen the value of the Sabbath in the hearts of God's people, and before you know it, voila! God's people slide into working and becoming trapped in the grind. Nehemiah is shocked, he's aghast. So what does he do? Down in verse 17 and 18, he confronts the leaders again. What is this evil? That's pretty strong language. What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. To paraphrase it, in Mike Philiberisms. Look, you people, this is part of what we did to bring ourselves into our late hot mess. And now we're back to bringing those troubles onto our heads again. Have you no sense? Right? That's something like that is what Nehemiah is doing here. Nehemiah, then, notice, with the civil and legal authority he has under Artaxerxes. Always remember that. Nehemiah is. Appointed as a civil magistrate magistrate by Artaxerxes, and so his actions will actually have actually has governmental authority in what he's doing. And so Nehemiah, with the civil and legal authority he has under Artaxerxes, flexes flexes those authorized magisterial muscles and he shuts the gates on the Sabbath day verses 19 through 21. And now that he's begun collecting the monies for the ministry, he reminds the Levites that preserving the Sabbath, guarding the gates and keeping out the marketplace and keeping out the merchants on the Sabbath is an important part of their calling of ministry. That's down in verse 22. So look at what he says in verse 22. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. That's an important part of their calling. That's what he reminds them of. So after confirming the Sabbath, he turns to consecrating their marriages. And that's verses 23 through 31. He turns to consecrating their marriages. And it's startling. This was a problem clear back in Ezra. When you go back to Ezra and read Ezra, it was a problem then. It was a problem early on, uh, back in chapter 7 and 8 of Nehemiah. It's been a persistent problem where believers or those who are in the covenant community are marrying outside. And so here they are again. The people of God have started marrying outside of the faith once more. And it's harmful. It's not only, it, it disobeys God's plan and His words. But it's also harmful. How do you know it's harmful? Because here you will notice it harm, it's harmful for the children. Sorry, I know that some people like to use that for political leverage, you know. Well, think of the children. But here it is, literally, it's harmful for the children. So down in verse 24, half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, spoke the language of the pagans, the Gentiles, And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each tribal peoples. Well, what was the language of Judah? Hebrew. What was the language of Holy Scripture? Hebrew. What was the language of the temple liturgy? Hebrew. By them not knowing Hebrew, they are actually being cut out of the covenant. They're not able to hear about God's steadfast love that endures forever. They can't read sacred scripture. They have no idea what grandma and grandpa are talking about because they don't know the language. Do you see how it's harmful for the kids? It's hugely instructive, this whole scene. My friends, believers are to marry believers. It is not an option. Christians are to marry Christians. When we have control of who we marry, there are some places you have no control. You go to the Middle East and Asia and places. Some places you have no control. But when we have control over who we marry, that's the standard. Christians marry Christians. Believers marry believers. Period. That's number one, by the way. Anybody here young, getting thinking about getting married, that's the number one thing you start with. Is this a Christian? If it's not, game may be over. Okay? Doesn't mean that it's necessarily over if they become Christians, but that's number one. And here you have it again. The impact, if you don't do that, if you don't have Christians marrying Christians, the impact um, will normally show up in your children. Half of the children could not understand Hebrew, which means they couldn't understand God's temple worship, which means they also could not understand sacred scripture, which was in Hebrew. Nehemiah is incensed. And so he begins to do physical things that jar us as good Americans, but remember, Nehemiah is a civil magistrate in the Middle East, in the ancient era of the Middle East, and so in his legal and appointed role as magistrate, he takes action administering corporal, corporal punishment, not capital punishment, but corporal punishment, physical punishment. Do you remember some years ago, the American, the young American, that he was in Singapore or someplace or wherever it was. Yeah. And Americans were aghast that they, he got caned. But that's how they administered justice. And it was legitimate in their situation. It's the same thing with what Nehemiah's doing. It was exactly what he could do as a magistrate, and he did do it. These are not the actions. Nehemiah's actions are not the actions of a vigilante. They are not the actions of a lone citizen. They are the actions of a civil magistrate who in that day had the authority and the power to do what Nehemiah did when he grabbed hair and yanked it and all the other things he did physically to some of these people. I say that because at some point, you're going to have somebody you're reading to or you're talking to and they'll say, you know, I saw that Nehemiah was pulling hair and all that over people marrying outside the faith, that just seems so, I mean, just so intolerant. And you need to remember, he was a magistrate. And in that season, he did what a magistrate was allowed and command actually authorized to do. Does that make sense? It's actually something of an apologetic when people start to tell you that the Bible's full. of Anyways, let's move on. There are these are, as I already said, these are not the actions of a, of a of a single citizen. They're the actions of a civil magistrate. Notice that he further then confronts the people with scripture and their own oath. If you look down there, you'll notice how he says it to them. He says, um, down in verse uh, verse uh, the end of verse twenty five. Uh, verse 25, I confronted them and cursed them and beat, uh, uh, beat some of them and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in, this, in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Verse 26, now he's quoting Scripture or summarizing Scripture. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, born women made him, even him to sin verse twenty seven shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women marrying outside the faith is what he 's concerned with, so he confronts the people with scriptures and even with their own oath um, he even had to notice confront he had to confront the son of a high priest verse twenty eight the son and uh, one of the sons of Jehoiada. The son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanbalat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. So he had to confront the son of the high priest, which then would have placed him at great risk. So who's got the power in Jerusalem at this point? Well, Eliashib does, the high priest. And he's also got the mafia on his side. He's married into the Mafia family. Nehemiah has just put himself at great risk to do this. So he's placed himself even at great risk, running off Jehoiada. But through all of these disappointments, so those were the four things that they'd promised they would never compromise on, and here it is, they did. So throughout all of these disappointments, notice that Nehemiah uses a cascade of prayer. It's in verse 14, 22, 29, and 31. Very much like the opening chapters of Nehemiah, Nehemiah once more records how he prayed throughout all of these discouragements and disappointments. So I'm just going to run through them very quickly. After collecting monies for the ministry, he prays, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for His service. Verse 14. After confirming the Sabbath, he prays, Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness. Spare me. He knows that he is under threat. Spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 22. Casting away Jehoiada the priest, the son of the high priest, for violating the beauty of marriage by not only marrying an unbeliever, but also marrying the daughter of the enemy of God's people, Nehemiah prays in verse 29. Remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. He's praying about the reigning family, right? And he says, remember them because they have desecrated it." And then finally, at the end, when summarizing what he had to do once, or what he had to do once he returned to Jerusalem, he prayed, the very end, remember me, oh my God. For good. The end of verse 31. Now to some, these prayers may sound rather self-serving, may even sound like works righteousness, but it's not. Nehemiah is essentially asking God to smile upon his work that it might have lasting impact and win the day in God's covenant community. But also notice he is praying that his own safety would be secured. Spare me that his own safety would be secured since by confronting the ruling families who were in league with the local mafia, they could have had him killed. Nehemiah took great risks and he prayed rich prayers. Nehemiah took great risks and prayed rich prayers. So concluding thoughts. We come to the end. Nehemiah Nehemiah chronicles... Uh, so much that's positive, chapters 1 through 12, with all of the rebuilding after a hot mess, to seek the welfare of God's people, and then Nehemiah ends on a downer. It ends with career and ministry failure. Think of that. And you have to ask the question, why? I'm going to tell you, first off, I appreciate the note that Nehemiah ends on. You may think I'm sick. I am sick. But that's beside the point. I appreciate the dark note that it it ends on. Why? Because many ministry programs that are out there right now, been out there for years, different ones, always present and almost only present the glitzy and the glamorous. You do our program, you will be a mega church. You do our program and you will have complete success. That's how they present it and that's all they present. They only show the success side of their project. And then there are calls for revival and reformation that often swell up from ministers and people who seem to think that revival and reformation is a cure-all to what ails us. But But the very human reality displayed in Nehemiah is that sustainability is a problem. We often begin with big promises and the promise of big things. We often begin with big promises and the promise of big things. But in a few weeks or months or years, it all becomes mundane and monotonous, and we begin to slip a bit here and slide a bit there. Just think of the Bible studies you've been to, right? Brand new Bible studies you've been a part of and how there's such a great promise that it's always going to be well attended because the first time there's 20, 40, 60, 80 people that show up. And then the second day that everybody comes back, it's not everybody, it's maybe 18, 28, and 30. And then before you know it, through the remainder of the Bible study, it's 10 to 15. It's a pretty normal pattern, actually. We fall into this constantly. And so chapter 13 of Nehemiah is very instructive and it is very sobering. It's almost as if God, where our own mental well-being and our own good is reminding us don't put your faith in revivals reformations and renewal movements put your faith in me y'all that's my paraphrase and that's where mental health flourishes when you do that instead of putting everything in the basket of all the achievements and the the big stuff that gets you big news on Yahoo and YouTube and whatever else, right? I love the way that Dean Ulrich puts this in his commentary, and I have the quotation in your sermon notes there, I believe. If I don't have it there, let me know and I will give it to you. Ulrich said this, quote, This community for which Nehemiah had risked his life still struggled with sin. In fact, they fell into the same nagging sins. God's people never arrive at perfection in this life. Here, then, is the lot of anyone who endeavors to serve God by serving His people. Significant strides may occur, but the highs of revivals do not last more than a short while a very healthy statement. The highs of revival do not last but a short while. And so I find that the recording of Nehemiah's downer in sacred scripture here at the last chapter is God's loving goodness toward us. Humans are fickle. Humans are flash in the pan. Humans are flim- flimsy. So don't buy into the newest, most hip, and hottest revitalization program because... There will be people involved. We used to jokingly say in seminary ministry, it would be wonderful if it wasn't for people. right? There's people involved. And it will most likely only be short-lived. But do do this. All the way through Nehemiah, you see him doing this. Do pray. And do pray. And do pray. Right? That's what you should be doing. And do also the hard work of rebuilding after a hot mess, plotting one step after another. But also realize your limits. Years ago, my dad got involved in a bit of a, uh, an insurance. It wasn't a scam or a scheme as far as I know, but it really actually helped him a lot in his investments. And it was A.L. Williams. I don't know if anybody remembers A.L. Williams. It was kind of a flash in the pan. But A.L. Williams had a book that was really, just the title. I don't remember anything else in the book, but the title. And here was the title. All you can do is all you can do, but all you can do is enough. All you can do is all you can do, and all you can, but all you can do is enough. And when you put that in the context of sacred scripture, you go, oh, yeah. That's it. My confidence is not in my doing. It's in God. And we'll just, we plot. That's why I appreciate it being here. The other reason why I appreciate chapter 13 being here with it ending on a downer is because it brings us to look beyond this Nehemiah to our greater Nehemiah, the Lord comforts. To look to our greater Nehemiah whose kingdom has already begun coming and will come in all of its fullness one day, and there will be no failure in the end. When it fills out unendingly with success like we've never experienced it before, and joy and peace and so forth. That's why Paul, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, as he's talking about the resurrection, he ends with these two verses. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, beloved Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. I appreciate the downer because it makes us pull back and go, we're looking forward to the greater Nehemiah and the, the success of his coming, of his final coming. And There we go. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your sacred word, that even the memoirs of Nehemiah. Thank you for the sobriety in this book. Lord, we pray that you would help us to always be looking to you, the greater Nehemiah, the greater the Lord who comforts, who came in the flesh for us and for our salvation, and who is coming again to judge the living and the dead, who is coming again to triumph over even your last, the last enemy, death. We are so grateful, Lord Jesus, and so we pray that you would help us. You would help us to always look to you and walk on, praying, and working, but always trusting in you. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.